Okay, dear students, we're ready for our final presentation on stocks. And to be truthful, if you are really in a tight pinch and really can't go over this presentation, just know that there's not going to be any questions on the exam from this presentation. It is more of a, a discussion of the emotional uh, problems that we have when we, when we deal with stocks. And uh, also, we want to learn... Some, from really good nuggets of information from all stars of investing. Also, I'm going to make a final plug for you to think about Business 123, Introduction to Investments, plus a career in stocks or the investment world, the investment financial uh, investment services, financial services world, because it is vast and there is a place for you in the future. Okay? And then we'll spend a little bit of time and we'll swap some war stories. Well, we won't swap them because I'm I'm doing all the talking. So just want to let you know in ahead of time. But I'm not trying to say this is not valuable information. I believe it is very valuable. But we're not going to ask questions about, about Mr. Warren Buffett or Mr. Benjamin Graham or Sir John Templeton. Okay? All right. So let's get started on slide 48. Here are some of my favorite gentlemen, or all men, <laughs> They're, women make better investors, by the way. It's already been shown. Women make better investors. But but these are guys that are uh, all stars of investing. Peter Lynch. We already talked about him. He said, look, buy what you know. You you understand McDonald's. You understand Home Depot. You understand Walmart. You understand Nike. You understand Apple. So it doesn't mean you should buy those companies without thinking about them. He doesn't say that, but you understand the business. So now that's a beginning. And now let's do more research and see if it's, if it's a, a viable company for us to own. And that's what he did. You know, he loved uh, Dunkin' Donuts. And for him, it was a big, big winner. He saw that Dunk people were, you know, eating a lot of donuts. This was back in the late 70s, early 1980s. And he uh, he did very well with um with uh, Taco Bell because he saw that people were really flocking to this is before Pepsi bought them and then they then they Pepsi bought Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell and and pizza crap hot 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 and uh, then spun them off into another company called Yuma Brands. So buy what you know. Warren Buffett says, look, don't buy a stock. Forget about stocks. Buy a company. If you really would want to own FedEx or UPS, right? Great. If you had enough money to buy the entire company, would you do it? Yeah, I'd love to own FedEx. Great. Go buy 10 shares. But do your research, of course, right? He puts the emphasis on the value of the entire company. Remember the market capitalization? Well, you know, none of us have enough money to go out and buy FedEx, but he does. <laughs> so he buys an entire company. One of the last things he bought a few years ago was Burlington Northern Railroad. He bought the entire company. And so he's big enough to do that now. And his teacher, Benjamin Graham, he was called often the father of value investing. And uh, this was at a time, back, you know, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, his first book came out in 48, I think it was. His first, uh, his first version of The Intelligent Investor came out in 1948 where people were just buying things willy-nilly and not even thinking, and then they weren't buying anything because the, the Great Depression came along. So he, 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 he started the, the idea of value investing, and Warren Buffett was his student and did very, very well. And then John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, pretty good for a 
kid who grew up in Tennessee, right? He became a knight. He was one of the first mutual fund managers to invest outside the United States. He wasn't the only one, but he really said, look, look, look what's going on in Japan when, when people were poo-pooing Japanese products. And look what's going on in, 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 in Europe and Australia. Whereas a lot of people said, no, 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 we, we, we're staying with the United States. And, you know, that's, there's a lot to be invested in in the United States. But then, you know, you're leaving out some of the best countries in the, in the world if you don't think about investing outside the United States. Okay? And then Bill Miller. Now, here's a lesson to eat for you. Bill Miller worked for Leg Mason Value Trust. Now, Leg Mason has since been bought by Franklin Templeton. Yeah, I think they're merging them in there. But he, he um, and we'll come back to the Leg Mason Value Trust uh, in Chapter 13. And for 15 years in a row, calendar years, he beat the S&P 500, an unprecedented record. This is like, uh, remember Mr. Tony Gwynn passed away uh, tragically? Um, he won the uh, the batting championship like six, seven years. I mean, it's, no one's going to do that, right? No one else is going to do that. And probably no one else is going to beat Mr. Miller's record. And unfortunately for him, as far as I'm concerned, he became one of the financial media's megastars. Every word he said was 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 analyzed, and and I, I, I would hate that. Can you imagine trying to do your job when they got this ten thousand watt spotlight shining on you? Well, if you go calendar years, yes, he beat them fifteen years in a row, which no one's ever done. Probably no one will ever do it. But if you don't pick up the calendar years, if you pick up you know May or June or whatever some other month, he didn't do it. Well, of course, that's you know not in case it was basically just dumb luck. But he, not that he wasn't a very good money manager, he was. But then what happened, his style got out of favor in 2006 and 7 and 8, and he lagged badly. He was very concentrated. People used to ask me, well, why don't you invest? Because I used him as, as an example for in, our, in our introduction to investments class and in our financial planning class. I'm old, folks. And, uh, and people would say, well, why don't you invest? Do you invest with Mr. No, I don't invest with Mr. Miller. And, and they'd say, why? I said, because he's, he's very concentrated. In a mutual fund, you'd like to see at least 100 or more companies. He would have about 40 which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. And especially if, if your style of investing goes out of, out of uh, favor. If your value or growth, well, you know, we, don't, we don't get too much into that in this class. We do in the, other, in the next class. And his style get out of, got out of favor, and he just trailed really badly. But then he seemed to redeem himself in 2009, but then again did badly in 2010 and 2011. You can you imagine the stress this guy is under, or all of them are under, and that's why I like companies that have a team, you know, not a star. And he retired in 2012. But now, actually, he, he didn't retire. He sort of, he's got something else going on these days. But I'm surprised that Leg Mason let him stay as long as they did because it's a very tough business. It's a very tough business. If he were at Fidelity, they would have canned him after the first, you know, second or third year in, in uh, bad returns. Yeah, so let that be a lesson to you. It's a very tough business, but you and I... Unless we go to one of the most prestigious schools or, or whatever, are not going to become a mutual fund manager. Uh, maybe you never know. This one woman at um, American Funds, one of my favorite funds, started as a secretary back in the 1970s, and she's one of their best investors. And she's, you know, she's probably going to retire soon. But I'm going to be really sad when she does because I love listening to her. She's she's really sharp. So let's uh, go to slide number 50. And ask ourselves, what do all these people have in common? Hmm? 
Well, dear students, they have the courage to not follow the crowd because the conventional wisdom is usually not very wise. If you see everybody running that way, what do you think? Run with them, right? Wrong. <laughs> 100,000 years ago, it made a lot of sense because you sat around and you got eaten by the tiger. But now it can lead you to some really bad investment decisions. And remember that I for unrecognized value we talked about, that sixth sense that, that says, wait a minute, this is what everybody else sees, but look at this over here. And this is from the world of chess. Gary Kasparov and Anatoly Karpov were the two best chess players in the world. This was uh, 25, 30 years ago. And they one would win the championship and the next year the other one would win the championship and back and forth until finally Gary Kasparov became the undisputed champion. And then he lost to a computer. I don't know if he, that was what, late 90s or so? Check that out. He lost to a uh, computer called Deep Thought. <laughs> um, anyway, he was once asked why they, the two of them, were the best two best chess players in the world. And his, astonish, his answer was astonishingly simple and direct. He said, we attack better than anybody else, and we defend better than anybody else. You know, it doesn't get any simpler than that, right? They're the best at what they do. And these people bought the best companies and avoided the worst companies, which is what I'm more interested in. I don't have to have the best companies, but I do not want the worst companies. Make sense? I think so. Good offense or good defense? If you want to use the sports analogy, um, what's the saying? You know, offense wins games, defense wins championships. I think that's the saying. I'm not sure. I'm not much of a sports fan. So slide 51. Speaking of avoidance, <clears throat> as a mutual fund investor, which I mostly am, I'm not looking to find the next Peter Lynch. I'm looking to avoid the next Charles Stedman. And you've never heard of Charles Stedman, but look him up. There's still information about the guy. He ran his own mutual fund called the Stedman American Industry Fund. There's a bad sign right there. You name it after yourself. From December 1959 until his death in 1997, and his cumulative total return was almost minus 43%. This is during one of the largest <laughs> growths of the global economy in the history of the world, he lost 43%. He would have done much better by simply putting the money in a savings account at a bank. Or if he had put it in a mattress, he would have done better. I don't know. Maybe he came from the life insurance industry. So look up Mr. Charles Stedman. It's a very interesting story of somebody who persevered even though he was totally incompetent. You know, we don't want you to give up. But if you're really not good at what you do, you should be able to figure that out and try something else. But, but he never tried something else. He just kept doing it horribly uh, yeah <clears throat> so <clears throat> i'm looking to avoid mr charles stedman here's what mr warren buffett says and he's basically just paraphrasing his teacher be fearful when others are greedy be greedy when others are fearful and this is a very popular quote but he's just paraphrasing his boss not his boss his mentor his teacher when his mentor said in the intelligent investor Buy when most people, including experts, are overly pessimistic and sell when they are actively optimistic. So when you hear everybody saying, yeah, blue skies ahead, buy stocks, quick, they're giving away free money, get down, run down, get your thumb. <clears throat> yeah. Ooh, is it too late to get in? <clears throat> right. And then when do you buy? Did I, say that? did I say buy when that? I said that's when you sell. Right? That's when you sell. Did I say buy? If I did, I'm wrong. That's when you sell or just, you know, don't. Don't buy more. 
And when do you buy? You buy when everybody's walking around saying, oh, the world is going to end. Oh, stay away from the stocks. I'll tell you. They're the, they're the, remember Mr. Peter Lynch and, his, and the, um, and the uh, po cocktail party theory. Yeah, so it's nothing new. It's nothing new. It's been around for decades. This is the way to, to make money over the long term. And here's what Sir John Templeton said. Bear markets are born of pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. The time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy. Someone said, the Baron Rothschild, this is back after the, the, the uh, French and, uh, Revolution and the French War with the, the, the British, you buy when there's blood in the streets. Well, how's that for a, for a saying? On a similar note, Sir John Templeton said, to buy when others are despondently selling and sell when others are avidly buying requires the greatest fortitude and pays the greatest reward. Now, did Mister Mister at the time he be, he wasn't a a, a sir a knight yet, but did he? This guy's remember he's from Tennessee. He passed away several years ago, but his 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 uh, his legacy still lives on. Lives on. He created a foundation to marry science and religion and and spirituality. Uh, you know they still do stuff. He got you know, he funded it. Did he take his own advice? Oh yes, he did. December of 1941, you fans of history will know what that happened, right? That's when America was dragged, America, the United States of America was dragged into World War II. And what did Mr. Templeton do? He called his broker and told the broker to buy every bankrupt stock, every bankrupt company on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. <laughs> this is not, folks, it didn't look good for the for the for the free world. You know, Europe was completely uh, taken over, except for Britain by the the Nazis. And they were pounding on the door of, of the Soviet Union. Big mistake, Mr. Adolf. And uh, the Japan Japanese were, were had sunk one third of the Pacific fleet. And we're uh, making their way across South Pacific, Southeast Asia. And this Yahoo goes out and buys every bankrupt company. <clears throat> well, four years later, the war was over and Mr. John Templeton was a very wealthy man. You see why it's hard to be a contrarian? You have to wait for, for the blood in the streets times before you buy. So that's why it's kind of hard to sit there. Most of us grunts are going to be putting 50 bucks, 100 bucks a month away. So we're not going to pick the bottom. We're not going to pick the top. We're just going to be keeping on putting money in from our paychecks or our checking accounts because we're not Mr. Templeton. But I hope one of you two, one of you out there, uh, maybe become the next John Templeton. A woman, maybe. Uh, somebody in the minority, bilingual. This would be so cool. And don't forget Southwestern when you're up there, when, you, when you're up there in the spotlight. Don't forget where you came from. Oh, okay, let's continue. Okay, let's let's take a look at some famous myths and stupid sayings, and we'll we'll do, go through this quickly, okay? Because it's again, it's again, it just make shows you how emotions play such a part of our uh, of many people's investment strategies, and they just they just believe their own uh, malarkey and their own uh, myths. You hear people say it can't go any lower. This was one of my, my clients was saying, should I buy WorldCom? This was a long time ago, folks. 
15, well, 17 years ago, when World, you, many of you have never heard of WorldCom because you're not that old, but it was the major competitor to AT&T in the end of the 1990s. And there was a lot of accounting trickery going on. And it had gone down to 25 cents. MCI, you might have heard of MCI, I don't know. Uh, and one of my clients was saying, shouldn't I buy this 25 cents? I, it can't go any lower. I said, yes, it can. Once it hits zero, then it can't go any lower. But until then, it can go from 25 cents to a penny or 0 0.01. And in the case of WorkCom, disappear. It can't go any higher. Oh, yes, it can. If the earnings are continuing to grow, there is no limit. There's no stop sign. And people were talking about um, in the 1980s and the 1970s, uh, uh, Philip Morris, which sells cigarettes, Marlboro, they can't go any higher. Oh, yes, they can because they sell the darn things for $8 a pack and they make them for about 25 cents. Yeah, right. It's only $3 a share. What can I lose? It doesn't matter how low the price is. The price can go to zero and you can lose all your money. Remember the market capitalization. The price, the stock price is not important until you know the market capitalization. It has to come back. Yeah, you ever heard of Penn Central? No, there's a reason you haven't heard it about it. Because they went bankrupt back in what, 69, 1969? Been around for 150 years. Yes, the world's largest bankruptcy up until that date, but there have been bigger ones since then. How about Pan Am? Did you ever see 2001, A Space Odyssey? The guy went into space on Pan Am Space Airlines. I mean, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> How about Kodak? Enron. Oh, there's lots of examples of companies that never came back. When it rebounds to $10, I'll sell. Now, I know what this person's saying, right? Okay, they bought it at 10 It's now selling for 6 or $3. And they don't want to admit they made a mistake. So they will stubbornly hold on to it until it gets back up to 10. Then they can sell and say, I got out. It's, it's, it's a bad strategy, folks. Because um, if you wouldn't buy it now at $6 or $3, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't hold it at 10. You should get rid of it because you probably, it's, not, it's probably going to go lower. But you don't know that. If you would buy it at 6 or $3, maybe you want to hang on to it. But the stock has no idea that you bought it at 10. It's not going to go back up to 10 to make you happy. And if you sell it, you'll quickly forget about it. You'll just quickly forget about it. But if you hang on to it, that's how our brains are wired. They're wired to forget unpleasant experiences. But if you hang on to it, every time you look at your screen or your statement, you're going to be reminded of how stupid you were by buying it at $10 in the first place. So get rid of it. The stock's gone up. I must be a genius. The stock's gone down. I must be an idiot. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Never mistake a bull market for brains, is an old Wall Street saying. In fact, I've heard money managers who said, look, I got in just at the right time. It was just, this one guy, he's since re, long since retired, but he said, I got in in 1962. The market went in two directions in the 1960s, up and way up. And I started to think I was invincible. And then he said, what a bad deal that was. Because <laughs> then when the market tanked in 72, 73, 74, he just wasn't ready. Whereas you hear people who say they got in during a bear market when prices are falling. That really helped them learn to be careful. And, 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 and you know, not just assume that you're a genius and that nothing can go wrong because things can go wrong. The, the organic matter is going to hit the ventilating device. We don't know when. We know it's going to happen. We just don't know when. And what you hear some people say, it's taking too long. Well, folks, it does take long. 
except for a very, very minute number of people who are really good at trading, and that's not going to be you or me. It does take a long time. As we saw, it, oh, actually, I hope you've gone through, and maybe you haven't gone through it yet, but if you go through stocks for the long term, the presentation that shows you $100 a month for 30 years, $100 a month for 40 years, you see that over the long term, assuming the world doesn't end, in which case doesn't matter where your money is, stocks have been very, very good to us. Plus, it gives you a chance to buy more if the price hasn't gone up yet. You've been sure that the stock is going to do well and things are going actually better than before. And yet the stock hasn't exploded. You get a chance to buy more. How's that? That's a good deal, right? Yeah. Now, it's different this time. This is what you hear people say when the market's screaming higher. Oh, it's different this time. Don't worry. The old valuation, the old methods of valuation are all wrong. Well, yes, technically it is different every time, but that does not mean you should not pay close attention to the realistic future prospects for the earnings of a company, whether they are good or whether they are bad, because it is different every time, but it is not different in that valuation matters. You pay an outrageously high price for something, you're not going to be happy in the long run. It's a new era. It's a permanent trend. Wrong. There ain't no such thing as a permanent trend. That's an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp and straight curve. Stocks are too risky. Now, you're going to hear people say this. And you got to, you have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge that, yes, stocks are risky, especially if, you, if we have a short-term uh, buy and sell and buy and sell trading men mentality, speculating mentality. They're just too risky for the vast majority of people trying to do that. But if you have a long-term perspective, if you don't panic when the market sells off, if you're consistent, even with all the shenanigans and the stupidity, they are still the best financial long-term investment. And again, the real estate people jump up and down, say, well, go get the real estate, relax. But stocks have made many, many people very wealthy over time. And that's going to be one of you, right? Because you and I are working grunts. And we're going to be putting 50 bucks, 100 bucks more if we can afford it through our 401ks, into our Roth IRAs, maybe a regular account. Yeah, I'm not going to get $10,000, $100,000 dropped in my lap. Are you? Well, maybe if you are, talk to me or take Business 123, Introduction to Investments, and learn how to invest. Cool. Okay, so that was famous myths and stupid sayings. Now let's take a look at slide 57. And it's... Not for the last time, my exhortation for you to consider a career in stocks. The typical career people think they have to have is a stockbroker. Well, the legal term is registered representative. And folks, the industry is far larger than just stockbrokers. There are so many jobs out there for you. And if you don't want to be deal with clients and all that, all the stuff that you have to do with that, and you want to be in the back office or whatever, there's a there's room for you and it's an exciting i am i love it okay i'm not i'm biased right i teach this stuff and i am a stockbroker but um they're going to do a background check they're going to make sure you're not having done any shenanigans with other people's money and you have to take a very difficult test and that's the series seven the series 66 is not that hard but the series seven is difficult and it takes about two months of studying um one to two hours a day it's six hours folks three hours in the morning Get an hour for lunch and then three hours in the afternoon. It is a grueling exam. But most people pass it. 
especially if they fail it the first time and they realize, you know, I didn't take, I didn't, they don't take it seriously. There's several things you have to be able to do and you can't slide. You have to know how to do all of them. It's, you have to, it, it, you don't, you don't re realize this because you're taking one exam, but there are about seven or eight exams in the exam, right? And so each one of the, there's one on stocks, there's one on options and futures, there's one on bonds, there's one on mutual funds, there's one on, on uh, uh, compliance issues and, and dealing with clients. And you have to get 70% on all of those exams, even though you don't really, you, you see the questions come by you, you realize, well, that's, you know, has to do with stocks, this has to do with mutual funds, this has to do with that. So, um, but, but you have to, you can't just, what happens is people blow off the, the, uh, the, op the options part, or they blow off the, the, the shorting, margin, buying on margin, which you don't want to do anyway, but you have to know it if you're going to be a stockbroker. There's another test you can take called Series 6, which, which is a hell of a lot easier, and that, then you can only sell mutual funds. And a lot of life insurance agents do this because that lets them sell what are called variable annuities. And you could do just Series 6 if you just want to deal with mutual funds, but you, you want to get to Series 7 eventually. And the Series 66 is much easier. It takes two to four weeks of study, and it's only an hour. And you will pass it, folks. It's not, it's not that difficult that you'll never be able to get it. Like, for example, see people say, I'll never be able to get calculus. And maybe you won't because maybe you're just not that motivated. But if you're motivated, this stuff is not that hard. It's just you have to pay attention to all the details. And that's what happens. People just sort of blow it off and they go, you know what, I'll go back and study more. You, you have to be sponsored by a brokerage firm. And what happens is brokerage firms... They don't want to hire people until they're sure that they can pass the Series 7. And some people never, you know, they, 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 they never, they wind up somewhere else in the firm, which is okay. And I, uh, I have a, a student who got a job in the brokerage firm and she didn't pass the Series 7 and she just decided she wasn't interested. And so she, she be, kept being a broker's assistant, which means she did everything the brokers did, but she can't fly solo. And so I keep trying to get her to take the Series 7. I haven't talked with her in about a year or so. Um, so what happens? The industry realizes that we need more people, but they're sort of reticent to get them to get them to take them on until they're sure they can pass the Series 7. So there's a pretest now called the Securities Industries Essentials Exam. And for this exam, you do not have to be uh, sponsored. You do not have to take a background check. It's like 80 bucks or so, $70. So it's not, the, the, the Series 7 costs like six $700. And usually the company pays that, but you know, sometimes they want you to pay it. Very few, very rarely because they're investing in you. So they, they say, oh, okay, we'll pay that because of the background check and all the other stuff that has to be done. But um, the, the SIE, the Securities Industries Essentials Exam, you can just take it without having to be sponsored. And if you pass it, I swear to you, you will get a job in the industry. If you pass that, you will get a job in the industry. And, I, and one of our students who did take it told me, you know, as long as I studied everything they asked me to study, most of all of it was what we learned in Business 123, Introduction to Investments. But then there's a whole lot of little sniggly little things they want you to remember that you would never remember. In fact, you'll forget them as soon as you take the exam. And then you'd look them up whenever you needed to know to know the answer to that question because you're, you're never going to need the answer to know that question. Okay, so I hopefully, 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 hopefully some of you will think about it and say, you know what, there's a future for me because uh, they, they need people. They know they need people. They know they they must diversify. Yes, they do. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Enough of that. Slide fifty-eight. Want to swap some war stories? Huh? You got any war stories? 
Well, these are four companies that I purchased personally, and all of them did well until they didn't. And all of them, except for one, had nothing to do with the fact that they were they, they, that they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. All of them were bona fide companies trying to break out into the big time. They were all small companies. And yet, uh, Alliance Pharmaceuticals, Advanced Tissue, Cardiodynamics, what happened was external to them. It wasn't their fault. It's just this is what happens to small companies. They get, they get clobbered by external events. Sometimes it's another company deciding they're going to – a huge company. Like they're, they're going to invest $100 million instead of just buying the company. They'd rather do it themselves. But Cenar Films is the one that broke my heart. Cenar Films. Oh, my goodness. See, this was my Peter Lynch story. This was my Peter Lynch uh, – because Peter Lynch says, look, you know, you, you, you drive a Subaru, check out. Maybe Subaru is a company you can invest in. You buy Nike shoes, maybe, yeah, maybe you want to invest in Nike. So Cenar Films, who are they? You don't even, you never heard of them. But my son was in third grade and we would, we would watch together uh, a show called, um, um, not Alfred. Oh my goodness, I forget the name of it. It starts with an A. He's, a, um, he's an aardvark. And uh, they have books, right? They had books by uh, by a very famous children's author, uh, Arthur. Arthur, that's it, Arthur. And up until this time, this was, you know, a long time ago, folks, Sesame Street was the most popular show on PBS for over 20 years, right? And Sesame Street is, is, a, is a nonprofit organization, the Children's Television Workshop. You can't invest in them. It's a nonprofit. But Cenar comes along and they come out with this show called Arthur. And it was, you know, definitely high, a little older than Sesame Street crew. And it's perfect for my son, third grade. And he was nuts over it. It turns out that Arthur became the number one show on PBS. So I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Let me look up. And I saw Cenar Films at the end of the, uh, the uh, so I looked up Cenar Films. They were, they were based in Montreal, a Canadian company. And they were then, they came out with another show called Caillou and Whimsy's House and another show, I can't remember the name, it was really popular. And they had this, this new agreement with this little, tiny little uh, electronics company. You might've heard of them, Sony. Right, <laughs> who owned, or I think they still own, Columbia Pictures for a global distribution outlet. And I looked up all the uh, good stuff about them, and, and, and the numbers looked good. And I bought some, and I got the investment club that I was in, involved in to buy some. And things were looking really good, and the stock was going well. And then one Sunday, Sunday, the Canadian Royal, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, you know, it's Canada's FBI, they're federal police department swooped into Cenar's office in Montreal and carted off a ton of uh, evidence. What was Cenar doing? Well, Canada is a little sensitive about the relationship with the United States. And if you hire Canadian actors and Canadian graphic artists and Canadian musicians and all that other stuff that, that has to do with putting together films, they will give you certain tax breaks. But the competition is stiff. So Cenar was hiring Americans, United Staters, and saying they were Canadians. All right, so it's not like they, you know, sold the H-bomb to the to the Ruskies. You know, it's, it's not that big a deal. Pay it, fine, and get it over with. And, and, and no, it did, that's not what happened. A few weeks later, it was found out that 
120 million Canadian dollars had been spirited away from the Sinar company into some shell company in Bermuda. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so Sinar disappeared from the face of the earth and somebody else got the, uh, I think it's another Canadian company called Nelvana now runs it. And uh, yeah, so that's what can happen when you invest in small companies. But is that going to happen to McDonald's? Oh, I hope so. No, it's not going to happen to McDonald's. Is that going to happen to uh, to Johnson and Johnson? Is that going to happen to uh, to uh, Boeing Airlines? No, they have their own problems, Boeing. But but no, Home Depot isn't going to something like that's going to happen. So that's why we emphasize large companies to be the core. Sometimes they use of your of your investments cool i hope so um and, and it always was the case that whenever i invested in small companies that were gonna i thought they're gonna explode they always did well all of them and then they all fell down most of them for no reason of them all i'll tell you what happened to cardiodynamics cardiodynamics was a very cool company based here in san diego and they made uh not the electroencephalograms which uh determine the uh, electrical activity of the heart, they made a device that could tell the, um, you hooked up the same place that you hooked up the EE, EKG, they call it, electrocardiogram also. Um, yeah, electrocephalogram. I'm sorry, that's the brain. No, this is the electrocardiogram, EKG. And they hooked the same type of uh, uh, sensors up to your body on your chest, but they can tell what's going on inside your heart. They can tell the, the, the flow of the blood through the heart. Which before, the only way they could do it was stick a, a, a thing down your, through, they go through, through your neck, down into your heart, which is really dangerous. I think with uh, something, it's very, very, very dangerous. But these people are very sick, so they have to do it. So, so everything was looking good, right? And um, uh, the, the people were, the doctors, cardiologists were using this to determine if people needed, uh, you know, bypass surgery and like. Well, it turns out that there's a whole lot of people walking around that look just fine that are candidates for bypass surgery. Their, their, their hearts are, are, are not doing well. They need, their arteries are clogged. It's, it's bad. And these guys, the new device was finding out so many of them that they were sending dozens and dozens of people, hundreds of people for triple bypass or quadruple bypass surgeries. And Medicare wasn't too happy about this. So Medicare said, we're not going to fund that anymore. We're not going to uh, allow. We're not going to pay out for the tests that cardiodynamics uh, machines do. And when they did that, the insurance companies followed suit. And so, what happened to Cardi? Right, exactly. So now this was a case where people, this comp, this 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 test was so good that it was finding a lot of people that were in deep kimchi. And this is because McDonald's is so popular, and the standard American diet of meat and dairy and eggs and all that stuff is. Is this, it's not good for us, folks, but that's okay. You enjoy your hamburgers and enjoy your cardio disease. Anyway, uh, so cool. See, again, but this doesn't happen with companies that are huge, right? It just doesn't happen. Okay, now slide number 59. Last slide, last slide. Okay, 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 okay. Bottom line, stocks are the best long-term financial investment available, folks, bar none. Now the uh, you know the, I notice I say financial because the real estate people say oh yeah real estate's not just as good sometimes better right right we won't we won't argue that we'll come back to real estate later 
but leave the stock picking to the pros. In other words, we're going to find a good stock mutual fund. And as bullish as I might be appear to be, my wife and I have 99% typically of our stock investments through high quality mutual funds. I simply believe it is unrealistic to think I'm going to do better than the professionals armed with an entire global research organization at their disposal. And remember, I used to call it my Vegas fund. I don't know if you remember that. It lived down to its name, right? That's when I invested in the small companies that could explode and make $1,000 into $50,000. But more, they made $1,000 into $50. And so how do you pick a mutual fund? Well, <laughs> that's the topic of our next chapter, chapter 13, where we tie it all together and show that we don't have to become stock pros or even bond pros. We allow the professionals to do it, and we have to pick a good mutual fund. And that is not easy, but once that's done, you're done. You don't do anything else. You just you, know, you can look at it every six months, every year ago. So see you in our next chapter on mutual funds.